do whatever. So oh, it was so good. I've sent it to a few friends of mine by text, and they're like, "Who is this guy?" You should you should create a Fiverr account and make a crap load of cash that way. <laughs> make a crap load of five dollar bills. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> It's Sunday, August 28, 2016, and this is Catching Foxes, episode number 57, Don't Be a Jerk, with Matt Frad. Matt Frad, our, I think, America's favorite Australian, joins us today to talk about his podcast and his latest book, Pints with Aquinas. I made an ad for him. It's pretty awesome. I think you'll agree. So sit back and listen on how to engage with people without being a jerk. And then finally, finally, finally... Ladies and gentlemen, I can't, I can't, it just breaks my heart to say this, but Luke will no longer be with us on Catching Foxes for this episode. That's it. He was on a business trip. God bless. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcoming a returning interview, the first interview we've ever had twice. So you were here um, back in one of our earlier episodes talking about your pornography apostolate and all this stuff. Um, Why don't you tell us just a little bit about that? Uh, well, number one, this is Matt Frad. Hi. America's favorite Australian. Why don't and you... And then you had my sister on, too, which was cool. Thanks <laughs> for doing that. Yeah. Now we've got to get your wife on. you get and... my mom. <laughs> yeah, I, I, she, she doesn't return my phone call, so... Uh, uh, I'll let her know. know. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So why don't you tell us, uh, update us a little bit about what you're up to, and uh, and we'll just kind of go from there. Thanks, man. Yeah, so I do, I do a lot of different stuff. Um, I, I'm doing, like... I'm doing like kind of postgraduate studies in philosophy. So that's a real big passion of mine. So whether I'm talking about pornography or Catholic apologetics, I always sort of somehow find a way to incorporate philosophy into it, right? So um, we have an apostolate called Integrity Restored. The youth outreach is called The Porn Effect. And so, you know, I speak a lot about that topic. We have a podcast called Integrity Restored. Um, So I travel and speak on that kind of thing. Um, And then also I've been doing a lot of stuff – and it's all thanks to you, Goma, really. I mean, you, you're the one who kind of tutored me through this as I started a new podcast. Could you, uh, could you say that again? All um, thanks to who? It's like really a... all thanks to, to, to Goma. I mean, <laughs> Luke was no help whatsoever. I mean, I had to beg him, but he was like, Matt Frad, who the heck is that? But anyway, you helped me. So I started Pints with Aquinas, uh, which is like a basically every show we talk about something Aquinas talks about. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, that's all I've been doing, man, and just trying to be a good dad and failing and asking for forgiveness and starting again. Yeah, uh, the uh, <laughs> the Pints with or, uh, Integrity Restored podcast, you're going to drop the episode that me and you recorded yeah. uh, a couple months ago. You're going to drop that tomorrow. What is that day? Monday the 20th? Let's see, something? 29th. 29th, Monday the 29th. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I'll link to it. Thanks. Or maybe I won't. I don't know. Like, I always feel nervous, like, when church people hear this stuff. They're Welcome like, to my life. <laughs> you know what's so hard? It was one day I gave a talk, and I don't, I don't know if I mentioned – I might have told this story. But I gave a talk at church, and I had mentioned one of the times that I saw pornography. And this woman just looked at me and just got so disappointed. Like, she's just like, oh. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't I'm Sorry didn't I have eyeballs, and there was no choice in the matter for me living in this day and age. Yeah. Well, it was. I mean, I bought the movie in a hotel yeah, room. But... <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Let's give credit where credit is due. I am an idiot. Um, 
But yeah, so I'm excited to have you on because one of my favorite things is your Pints with Aquinas. I love Pints with Aquinas. I think do you, it's, do you actually listen to it? I do, I do. Oh, uh, man, I, that's, that's really cool because I, I listen. My wife and I listen to Catching Foxes all the time, and it's funny because we listen to it independently of each other. <laughs> and like at some point, we're like, "Hey, do you remember like when Luke said this?" And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, these people are becoming part of our daily conversations." <laughs> it's it's such an honor, isn't it, that people would, as you said at one point, let us into their ear holes and yeah. chat with them. Yeah, it's crazy. My my favorite thing when people come up to me, they're like, hey, man, I listen. So I was just at A&M, uh, Texas A&M at the St. Mary's Student Center. And this guy came up to me. He's like, you're Gomer. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, D, Gomer. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, basically. And, uh, and I was like, yeah. And he said, I just started listening to Catching Foxes. I was like, oh, that's awesome, man. I really appreciate it. And he goes, no, like on Monday and it's Friday. And I listened to all 56 episodes. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Okay, okay. Awesome. At, at that point, you're looking over his shoulder, hoping there's someone else in the room, just in case he makes some kind of bizarre claim about something you did to him. <laughs> I want to be with you. I want... Uh, we should be together. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Can we, can we talk in a place that's populated with people? Is there a, a, a better lit room that we could go into? <laughs> Preferably one with windows and an unlockable door. Um, uh, yeah, it's awesome, though. It's so, it's so bizarre when I – and my wife, who does not listen and will never listen. Uh, <laughs> the only episode she ever listened to was the one with uh, Maria Walther because they're personal uh, friends. Uh, and she's so, the best. Right. She's uh, the best. She really is. She really is. Yeah. But the, uh, it, it's, just, it's funny when people say like they binge listen. Um, yeah. And they're friends with, like, we have mutual friend Jeremy and, and Courtney, and Jeremy's been binge yeah. listening. And so he goes, he comes up to me the other day. His wife made us dinner because we watched their kiddo, and they're sweet like that. And he's like, so, Gomer, I feel like me, you, and Luke are best friends. <laughs> like, oh. Honestly, man. Honestly. Yeah. And, I, awesome. again, I just want to thank you for your show because – it's awesome. I just love. I think. I, th I think I left a, a, a phone message for you that was slightly um, over the top, but it was basically saying like, "Thanks for having the courage to do this," because yeah. I feel it's clearly needed. Like you've clearly hit a nerve where people. Yeah, here's the deal, right? Like good Catholics, all right, whatever your litmus test is for good Catholics, it's like we tend to speak in one way, you know, in public and one way in private, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, obviously. But I think what we all long for is to be let into a conversation like like how we actually talk. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And uh, you and Luke do such a great job. And I love how like unfiltered you are. I'm sure there's a lot of times Luke or yourself like maybe says stuff that you're like, ah, I kind of yeah. regret saying that or maybe I didn't word that the best. But that's just life, right? Yeah. I mean, that's we say things we regret or we say things that we could have said better. And uh, not to let the, the great be the enemy of the good. Is that, that's the phrase, right? Yeah. Because yeah. when, I, when I record episodes of Pints with Aquinas, like, I'll listen back to it sometimes and be like, oh, my gosh, I totally said the wrong word. Yeah. Like, I said oh, something there's like – nothing I, more frustrating than I that. I said something like, I know I have an American accent, and I meant to say Australian. I'm like, <laughs> ah! But then I'm like, but it's okay. Yeah. Like, we're among friends when people listen to us, I hope. Yeah. So, yeah. People... You have, so you have about 23 episodes of Pints with Aquinas. Do you, what was your favorite one so far? Oh, that's a good question. I think the one on happiness. Okay. I've, I've done a lot of different ones, like like on the ontological argument and yeah. on Thomas's first way and on faith and philosophy. But uh, I like talking about happiness because I think I got a little vulnerable there, um, mm. not not in a contrived sort of way, but just in a real way about like desiring happiness and never feeling like I'm able to find it and just some of the struggles that I'm going through. Um, I've had a lot of people write to me about that one. And, of course, it's all based on what Aquinas says. Like I'm, I'm less interested in giving my opinion than I am giving what like Aquinas's. So like I can't wait yeah. to do the episode where Aquinas is like, yes, you should beat your children. That'll be a fun episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, that will be a fun episode. I'm excited to hear that one because I remember reading um, 
reading it, you know, like in conservative circles, um, corporal punishment in the disciplining of your children is it's it's almost like an earmark of good parenting. Like you're not a real parent unless you you Beat spank and yeah, and and the severity, uh, you know, like this, this notion of strictness with morality. Um, like the hyper strict are people who are really hyper moral and not just uh, busybodies trying to control the thoughts and actions of every you know like. And yeah. I remember reading this article, um, and I would come from a, a camp that uh, it's kind of like a reformed Thomistic understanding of virtue ethics, right? Where you, yes. you it all revolves around virtue as opposed to just natural law. And this, I read this article written by a undergrad talking about how Aquinas would disagree with with physically disciplining your children because uh, it's not virtuous. Uh, virtuousness means the good appeals to the person so much that they respond to it, and you're just beating them when they do something wrong, and that's not good. And I was like, this person has clearly – is just like intro understanding of the virtuous life because when you don't have virtue, like when you read about like civil governments and stuff, they should punish people who are unvirtuous in order to correct their unvirtuous – you know, you try to make the unvirtuous behavior unappealing, you know, and, and all this sure. stuff. So I don't know. It's just, it's just funny when you hear people who – already have a conclusion and then they rush to get uh you know aquinas to to ratify their already them up yeah yeah well we can disagree agree with aquinas i haven't actually right. read that full article but i'm pretty sure he comes out on the side of yes of course you you can right and right, right, right. hit your children it's funny i i did that in the beginning with uh, one of my children is when i was a parent um <laughs> and i had other parents who were who like were very much the opposite like you should never do that you know yeah. and and for me, I'm like, I didn't have a hard philosophical stance. I was yeah, just I mean, trying to get through the day, you know. Yeah. Um, and I had a really active kid who would never sit still at mass. And looking back, I wish somebody had pulled me aside, you know, took me by the shoulders and went, dude, just just relax. Like, yeah. it's okay. Like, you know, because I think as a parent, you think this is reflecting on me. Why can't I right. be like one of these families where the kids all sit still and they're quiet and they're kneeling? And um, But for me, the reason I stopped wasn't necessarily because of a, a moral choice. I don't know. Maybe one day I'll be persuaded. I don't know. But it was more just like, this isn't working. <laughs> like, like it, whatever the morality of it, of spanking, it just, it wasn't working for me. And so I, we just took a different approach and have done that, done that ever since. But I, I wish it, like, I just want to say this, if there's anyone listening right now and you feel like a failure, cause you cannot get through 10 minutes of mass cause your children are screaming and whatever, like just God love you. You're beautiful. Yeah. You're beautiful. Just go stand outside. Have a smoke. It's okay. You know, <laughs> just relax. God loves you. You know, one of one of the big things. Me and my wife are pretty much in the same camp. We thought that spanking was the only way to discipline and raise your kids. And you know, when they're going nuts and they're one and a half years old, they're not going to listen to reason. And That's right. Yeah. Timeouts only work insofar as. I mean, the number one thing is the punishment must – the consequences, put it that way, must immediately follow the action or else the kids won't learn anything. If you say, well, you know, in two hours when we get home, you're going to go to bed early, then they – as a little kid, they can't associate the two events of disobedience with, right. with whatever. And so we just realized that even even what light – like what discipline, spanking, all that stuff that we did – it wasn't, especially with our second born, it didn't do anything. And our first born, you didn't have to spank her. She would spiritually spank herself. She would just get so, yeah. like, and I was very much that way. Like, I failed you. I'm, I'm a disappointment. And my daughter, my oldest does that. And my youngest is like, what did you just do? Well, whatever. And so it was just ineffective. So we, we don't really, uh, we haven't done it since our, our second kid was maybe one. 
you know, and that was just the only time we ever like hit quote unquote hit our kids is to physically prevent them from hurting themselves. You know, like they're putting their hand. We've had a couple of, I grill a lot. And so they want to run and put their hand right on the side of a grill. That's a scalding. Uh-huh. So you're like, no. So, but other than that, yeah, we, 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 I'm in the same boat as you. We don't have like a hard moral stance, but it just didn't seem to be effective. Look, here's the, I just found the quote from Aquinas. He says, it is lawful for anyone to impart correction to a willing subject, but to impart it to an unwilling subject belongs to those only who have charge over him. To this pertains, ready, chastisement by blows. (laughs) (laughs) Which coincidentally was the the name of my metal band in high school. (laughs) That would be chastisement by blows. Yeah, Yeah. that's good. Um, <laughs> hey, which which happiness episode were you talking about? Because I think it's had... I think it's fourteen. I did a series of them. Yeah, because Aquinas addresses this. Like, yeah. will will money make me happy? Will pleasures make me happy? Will fame make me happy? You know, yeah. uh, it's actually really nice because I think one of the things that helped me when I read Aquinas on will happiness, you know, what, can I attain happiness? His point is like no, actually, like you can attain happiness to a great degree, and that is secured by virtue. That's it. That's the only way you can secure happiness to any sort of degree. But it won't be had in this life. And so I kind of feel like maybe recognizing that I'm not going to be fully happy in this life is the key to begin actually being happier than I am now. You know, when I realize this is a veil of tears, and um, it's not meant to be perfect. That's that's kind of nice because I don't know about you, but like sometimes I'll have a cup of tea and I'll look down and it's it's halfway finished and I feel sad, yeah. <laughs> or like I'll eat a meal. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to end, yeah. you know. And it's like I thought my wife and I have this joke. I'll be rummaging through the cupboards at late at night, and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm looking for happiness, you know. <laughs> I just like something to satisfy me: chocolate, whiskey, something, you know. Um, but yeah, so I, that, I think it was episode 14, the first yeah. one. I've, there's a, uh, a Protestant evangelical minister where he was speaking at a, you know, pastor training event. Um, this is Andy Stanley out at North Point Community Church. And he said, uh, everyone needs to recognize your preaching styles reflect something completely different than your people. And he said, most people, most preachers preach as if the people in the pews were on a truth quest. So all we try to do is fill wow. them up with truth. And he said, when in reality, Everyone's on a happiness quest, huh. and they they want truth eventually because it'll lead them to happiness, but not initially. They just want to be happy, and all we do is try to give them truth, and we wonder why they go away and they don't care, or they're indifferent, or they're sad. You know, it's like wow. I I told you all these true things. How come your life isn't converted? And it's like, but most people become pastors because they went on this truth quest, and it changed their lives. And so, for the few people, yeah, and so I started realizing that. Looking at the bull, I, I would say that there is definitely a split in my ministry where half of it, you know, the BC kind of era was preaching truth for truth's sake, which is good and noble, but <laughs> converts few. And then preaching happiness, which which will lead you to truth, uh, which actually converts many. You know, I, you, yeah. I wonder. I wonder if this is why I imagine it would be safe to say that C.S. Lewis converts people more than Thomas. At least directly. I'm sure Thomas's influence is obviously much greater than C.S. Lewis. But when people read Aquinas, they're reading like like syllogisms, you know? Like he he doesn't have much sort of – he's not a very entertaining writer. That's why there's no Twitter accounts based around Thomas Aquinas or very few, right? (laughs) But but, uh, what, what Lewis does so well is he appeals right to desire. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah or, or you could say you can contrast that with um, if, if you're on a deserted island and you're stuck with one book, would it be the Summa or would it be the Confessions? I mean, I think Augustine, yeah. Yeah. Augustine writes with such – he writes prose. He writes literature. I mean, he invented a genre called the autobiography. And so yes. you sit there and you think about like – I mean, I love Aquinas. I think it was Dr. Peter Kraft who said – if I'm on a desert island, I'll take Plato over Aristotle and Aquinas yes, okay. any day. <laughs> I want to I talk about this, Goma, because I think you'll be able to help me. I, I've got a few thoughts that are laying half awake in my mind, and I'd like them to wake up fully. Um, <clears throat> I, I find myself, and I think most people do, drawn more to the sort of uh, those who are influenced by like Platonism or Neoplatonism than those who have been inspired by Aristotelianism, right? Um, like yeah. you, you think of Pascal or you think of Augustine or I don't know. Like when you read that, it just appeals right to the heart and to passion and emotion. Uh, and then when, when you read Aquinas, it's all about distinctions and that sort of thing. And my wife and I, for the last two months, have been attending a Byzantine church, a Byzantine Catholic church. So just for your listeners, it's a completely Catholic church. It's just a different rite of the Catholic church, right, the way it's celebrated. And what's interesting about the Eastern churches, which are Catholic, is that they pretty much stop with the Eastern fathers. They don't actually read the scholastics in seminary. They hate the scholastics. <laughs> to varying degrees. And I think the – and so – so I think the consequence is, right, you go to like a Latin church, like a Roman church, and it's very structured, especially if you go to the extraordinary form. It's very militaristic and regimented, and that's why I think a lot of people find it attractive. But then when you go to the Eastern church, it's much more mystical and maternal, right? And I think that in part has to do with obviously the, the, the fathers were much more influenced by Plato than Aristotle, um, because, of course, you have the Arabic philosophers who begin translating, which leads up to Aquinas, and that's when you know, Aquinas was baptized, and if you will. And that's why I think does – does any of that make sense? I'm sorry. Yeah. If... No, no, no. The, the Eastern – I mean, just take the notion of the word sacrament. They call it the mysteries. Right. We call it the sacraments. And sacrament specifically denotes its outward sign uh, and all the regulations that kind of go with it, whereas the mysteries mm -hmm. denote the inward grace <laughs> and all the kind of the dynamism that goes with that. Yeah, and like when you when you read the Eastern Fathers, sometimes it feels like you're reading a Buddhist who just converted to Christianity because it's so mystical. And or if you just compare the Rosary to the Jesus Prayer Rope, that's what I find really interesting—a good way to sort of like look at the you know the Eastern Lung and the Western Lung. You know, Pope John Paul II said that the, you know, the two lungs of the Church we need to breathe, breathe together, two parts of the lungs, right? So like the Jesus Prayer, it's like it's so funny when a Roman Catholic prays the the Jesus Prayer, like myself, I'm like, okay, so how do I do this? And like you just say, Lord. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, what else? That's it. Okay, but what about these different beads? No, that doesn't, that's just, you just count, that's for, uh, to count how many you've said. Well, what else do I do? That's it. What do I think about? Just Jesus. Okay. <laughs> and you go to the rosary, it's like on this bead, you think about this, on this bead, you think about this virtue, then you think about these things, and you pray this for that, and this for that. It's very structured, and does that make sense? I'm not yeah. saying that one's better than the other. I don't no. even know why I'm opening up and talking to you about all of this. You probably had because no this because this it. is a discussion, not instruction, and we're okay. just having a conversation. Okay. But but no, I mean, people have long said that the inheritance of the Western um, tradition or branch of Christianity is thoroughly Roman, whereas in the it, it, the Greek Church is thoroughly Greek and and Middle Eastern. That there's a larger like the Romans want things systematic. Uh, you know, and that goes right. back to Roman civil law, and Roman civil law goes very easily into Roman uh, Roman Catholic canon law. 
And it's kind of funny that the church actually asked all the, 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 the Roman Catholic church asked the Western churches or the Eastern churches to come up with a code of canon law because they didn't even want, they're like, come up with a what? And it's like, well, you should spell out the rights and privileges of the people and the distinctions of offices. And they're like, uh, okay, I guess. And so they came up with a very distinct code of canon law for the Eastern churches. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very different from the code of canon law for the Roman Catholic church. But a lot of people don't understand that. I mean, I think one of the, you know, part of the mysticism of the West was the Latin language. So like yeah. people still preserved a sense of mysticism because it was no longer the vernacular that they were saying that you're walking in and the priest, I mean, think about it in a very traditional Catholic church. You walk in, the priest has his back to you 90% of the time. Everything is done in a language that you don't understand, or you only have a mass call and response understanding of the words. So you might memorize, like, dominate, you might memorize how to say those syllables, but you don't think in that language. <clears throat> You're right. And then you hear, and then half of it is, or more than half of it is done with just between the priest and the altar server. So, and they have his back to you, and there's this m- majestic kind of central altar that everyone is facing mm-hmm. and all this stuff. So that, I would say, is the element of mysticism that's involved in it. But then take that and then turn the priest around and then remove the Latin. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, all we have left now is the kind of the, the, the structure and order of it. And then the hippies went crazy. So, yeah. you know, in order to make it meaningful for me, because you know. <sighs> I, I posted a tweet the other day um, and it was a, it was a gif uh, of a, a, a woman saying, I have to go throw up now. And the, the tweet was something like, whenever I encounter either liturgical dancing or somebody who tells me that the um, extraordinary form is the only valid way the mass can be celebrated. <laughs> so I thought this is a nice way to offend both camps, yeah. right? But of course, in actuality, it's like the, the Byzantine rite predates the Tridentine mass by yeah. like centuries. It goes back to the, the 300s with yeah. Chrysostom who wrote it. Anyway. Well, you know, and, and the, the, the Tridentine rite might go back. We call it that because it talks about the Council of Trent. But sure. it goes, before it that, the Gregorian, that. the Gregorian Mass was, was largely the same, and it, right. that goes to the 5th century. My name is Gomer, and I'm the co-host of Catching Foxes. 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 Catching Foxes. Foxes. I would like to tell you about something more important than my podcast. What? Pints with Aquinas. Pint, pint, pints with Aquinas. Matt Fratt actually wrote a book on 50-plus deep thoughts from the Angelic Doctor. Pints with Aquinas. Here's the deal. Beer is easily lovable, but medieval monastic philosophers, they can be quite intimidating. Yet in this short, pithy book, and I don't use that word often. In fact, I never use the word pithy, but I'm going to use it here, and you're going to agree with me. Matt Frad made the greatest mind in the history of the church as easily accessible as your favorite beer. You'll laugh. You'll cry. Well, you won't cry, but you'll laugh and you'll discover that this old school philosopher's wisdom is just as relevant today as it was back then. So do yourself a favor. Get a copy of this enlightening, pithy little book from Amazon right now. And when it arrives, pour yourself a frothy pint and dig in. You'll be glad you did. Anywho, uh, so I think one of the things that's really important is this conversation of, like me and Luke, we always talk about the intersection of faith and culture. I think a bigger understanding of that is the intersection of philosophy with action or with philosophy with culture. Like, I think 
two, one of the curses of this postmodern age is we don't actually intellectually engage with our cultural presumptions. Whereas as, as Catholics, even, you know, in the siege mentality of the 50s and 40s or you know, the Middle Ages, we were – because our faith was so interwoven with culture, you were constantly thinking about these big things because that was the theme of every homily was these big things. The, what does it mean to be moral? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be, you know, happy? All of these things were just part of the cultural landscape, whereas – you know, if you're an atheist, not because you're some, you know, a, you know, new atheist guy, but just because you're never really raised in anything, where are you intentionally hearing about the big things that our cultural assumes, like the sexual revolution and, you know, like all of these things, like pornography is totally fine. Like, where do you, where do people sit around who aren't like smoking weed? Where do you sit around and contemplate Mm. Big truths. I don't think, and we're not really doing that unless you're in college. Yeah, and, and, and unless people kind of hook up to an ism, right? Like, there's a lot of great uh, feminist authors. I'm thinking of Gail Dines. She writes a lot on pornography. She would consider herself, I think, in some sense, to be a Marxist. I think she's an atheist, right? Um, so I suppose those who would consider themselves part of the feminism camp might might begin exploring areas that have to do with that ism, and yeah. then they might consider those deep thoughts. But yeah, I, I, grant, I grant your point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just talking about the average, the the hoi polloi, the unwashed masses. Like, the, right? Yeah. I mean, it's Stranger Things is one place to get it. I don't know. Did yeah. you watch that show yet? Oh my gosh! In 24 hours, I had consumed all eight episodes. No, you did not. Oh, I had to. I had to do some research for a, a talk that I was giving. So I had is that all. What you told your wife when yeah. you left over the kids. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, honey. I'll see you in a couple of days. I got television to watch. Um, no. So they all oh, went I, to. I my turned it on. Just so you know, my wife and I are going to watch the last episode tonight, so no spoilers. Okay, continue. Yeah. Uh, the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is every, oh, this is, awesome. people asked me, to, my wife was like, okay, describe this show. And I said, The Goonies meets um, Stephen King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, it was 80s horror that's PG-13. Like, yeah. there's nothing gory, there's nothing ultra-violent. But at the same time, it's like this air of creepiness and like, what's around the corner? Like, what the heck is happening? You know, I love it. I love uh-huh. every minute of it. So to, to, to get back to your point, you were saying, where do people encounter these deep ideas? Uh, the unwashed matches, as you put it. And I guess you're right. It's like we follow our Twitter. We follow our, you know, Netflix. And so unless those kind of thoughts are. And I suppose that I have to say this. I feel like we are living in a golden age of television. Oh, so good. Yeah. Right? Like people are able to hold within their mind all sorts of complex and sophisticated storylines for a long period of time. And they're able to be confronted with all sorts of sort of morally complex situations in a way that they never were, say, back in the 80s and 90s when we were watching things like, whatever, Friends or that sort of thing. The reign of the sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the sitcom, it's like they didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't trust that people were watching every single episode, so every episode was almost a show unto its own. Yeah. I mean, there was some crossover, but they were kind of individual episodes. You know, whereas now, I think I want to hear someone talk about that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Goma, because you're an insightful, intelligent dude. And I feel like when you say something like we live in a golden age of television, that would upset a lot of people because as Catholics, we're supposed to hate television and our children <laughs> should only be reading Plato. So, like, what, do you, what, what, do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, number one, as a consumer of all things television, <laughs> uh, whether it's legal or illegal, I will, I, you know, I will get access to it. Um, well, uh-huh. think about something like uh, The Walking Dead, which is the number one most watched show in the world. That right. right. Yeah, because it's being broadcast. I think the the way that AMC set up the rights, it's a lot easier um, access for the world markets and and different things to to get access to it. So people are watching it. They're obsessed with it. Um, 
it follows the comic pretty well in a lot of substantial ways. I think it actually improves on the comic. Um, less, in a lot less of, blasphemy. Less I blasphemy. Know. I know. I love. Uh, you know. You you ask yourself, what's canon? The book, or the the written word, or the or the visual? Mm. I don't know. I think with The Walking Dead, they the visual means uh, medium means you have to simplify yeah. the storyline. So, like you look at Game of Thrones, the books are. I mean, there there's a hundred plus characters that all significantly influence the plot. Versus, you know, they 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 still have a lot of characters, but you know the big ones, and and you kind of track with them. Um, but I would say that, uh, like, think about The Walking Dead and the isms that are behind it. You know, it's a, it's a very nihilistic worldview. Right. Whenever they bring up religion, it's it's it, but it forces you to ask these ultimate questions, right? So, like, they have a, a an Episcopalian priest that's on the show. Mm-hmm. And it's not really his struggle with faith. It's his struggle with morality, with with the notion – because he, he isn't struggling with whether what is God up to in the middle of this because everyone just assumes it's apocalypse or whatever. He's, he's struggling with whether it's okay to kill a zombie or not. Um, he makes a bunch of moral compromises and does things that are disloyal to the group. But it's never really couched in terms of religious faith or relation to God. I don't think in, in an explicit way other than in a moralism. And so I think the show, because of not explaining where the zombies come from and why, you know, it's it's this thing that's not a virus, it's not a bacterial infection, it's killing everyone. We all already have it, and once we die, we reanimate as a zombie. Um, I think I think it's interesting because I, I think it ultimately is nihilistic. Like, there is no uh-huh. hope. There is no thing. All you can hope for is survival. Uh, yeah, a lot of movies are like that these days. All the movies, even but, and and compare that to like Star Trek. What an optimistic, hopeful sort of show that was, huh? Yeah, I mean, Vision of the Future, where mankind got its act together, and now we're yeah. exploring the stars. But at that, you know, they the the rarity that they speak of religion. Uh, right. You right. look at the it, what Star Trek the original um, is a paying homage to the technocratic salvation of mm. you know science and technology will ultimately save us it'll ultimately mm. cure all disease cure hunger and then mankind will be united under the pursuit of the final frontier right and yeah. that hasn't happened so that's right. let us down and <laughs> yeah, yeah you know. we just keep using technology to kill each other right yeah so i don't know i think it's fascinating you know i was reading this one um critique of and this is something that i think our show really needs to like actually further the conversation on is this relationship between culture and faith where uh this one guy said in in the same year butch cassidy and the sundance kid and um true grit both Mm. came out and they both embodied worldviews that were opposed to one another in the context of a western and you have butch cassidy as this modern uh, like postmodern um hyper individualistic lack of care of you know they were anti-heroes they're not necessarily clear-cut good guys and then you have the true grit with um john wayne who embodied the end of an era of the you know the pre-boomer um mm. you know the great generation the silent generation their their worldview their understanding of duty in the face of overwhelming odds and all this stuff whereas the hyper individualistic ethic of butch casting the sundance kid so the problem my problem is you see this in the superhero movies where there's no good superheroes like they're all it's it's not like hmm. realism to the point where it's like okay what would it be like if batman were alive today i think the christopher nolan movies did that the best but a lot of like i think the dc universe is just showing like even superman murders people and batman murders people and hmm. it's just like terrible you know like even the the best among us superman who doesn't have to kill anyone is just killing people and batman's killing people and in the end we're all 
we're all get, we're all on this slurry of of uh, yeah. pessimism, and so I don't know. I'm looking for I'm looking for something <clears throat> positive. So here's my question to you: no, how, okay. how do we argue without being a? <laughs> <dick>? <laughs> how, how do we in a culture where there are distinct distinct philosophies, a culture where people are reasoning logically, but just from their own first premises to their own conclusions, and those conclusions are radically different from each other? How do we how do we argue? Logically, from the whatever it's as a Christian or specific moral issues, yeah. without being a jerk. Well, that's a good question. A lot that could be said. I think the first thing to realize is that that arguing is not a bad thing. It's it's actually a good thing. Um, but if you type in argument into Google and click images, what you see is two people yelling at each other. You don't find people having this sort of ironic discourse. But of course. What is an argument? An argument is just giving reasons to believe something or to give reasons to not to believe something. That's it. So sometimes you'll unfortunately hear Christians say things like, we should tell our story. We shouldn't argue with people. Well, if by argue you mean just sort of be argumentative, then I would agree with you. But arguing is necessary because when it comes to the gospel, because once you proclaim the gospel to someone, what they're likely to say to you is something to the effect of, well, how do you know that's true? And if you're to answer them in a coherent way, you have to then give reasons to show that it's true. And that's arguing. Um, I actually plan on doing two or three episodes on Pints with Aquinas all about what arg- argumentation and common fallacies and how to respond to them. Okay. We won't get that into nice. that he- here because nice. I don't want to get too technical, but maybe here's one thing to kind of keep in mind. Um, um, listen to people. Like, actually listen to them. And I say that as someone who finds that difficult to do, especially when I'm convinced that I'm right. I, I, when people are talking to me, I'm just thinking about how brilliant my response might be able to be as soon as they shut their lips. Um, and that, that sucks because I don't like it when people do that to me. And um, there's usually a couple of dead giveaways when people aren't listening to you, right? Like, one, they nod and make affirming noises that don't match up with the cool things you're saying. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's not matching up with my awesome points. <laughs> uh, yeah, the other thing is they might look over your shoulder, then you then you catch them and then they realize they've been caught and then they overcompensate or they, you know, with, with the intense eye contact, that sort of thing. So I think we should just like, we should listen to people because though we, we may not be able to agree with them, we can at least appreciate or try to appreciate where they're coming from because we know what it's like when we feel like we're right and people aren't listening to us. So I think like listening to what people have to say uh, and not attacking straw men. It's fun to do that. It's easier to do that. But but to actually listen to them. I think the second thing to realize is that never expect anybody to change their mind while you're speaking to them. Um, a friend of mine, his name is Randall Rouser. He's from Canada. He's a theologian, evangelical theologian. He has this fantastic analogy that once I heard it, I've never been able to forget it. He said, he contrasts trivial beliefs with deep-seated beliefs, okay? So, um, suppose your wife says to you, go get the vacuum cleaner, it's in the attic. Well, if the vac- your response is probably going to depend on where the vacuum cleaner is in the attic or where you think it is. So if it's right by the door, you'll probably be like, okay, no problem. But if it's buried in the back, you might be like, do we have to? Can we do it later? Can I go buy a new vacuum cleaner? All right. So the vacuum cleaner closest to the door represents our trivial beliefs. So if somebody listening right now thinks that Sydney is the capital of Australia and I say, no, it's Canberra, 
you're probably unlikely to dig your heels in. You'll probably just change your belief, okay? But if someone listening to me believes that, like, abortion can be justified, and I, say, and I try and give an argument for why that's not true, that's un- you're unlikely to change your mind because it's kind of – in order to do that, you have to move, if you will, a lot of other things around to get to that belief. A whole lot of shuffling has to go on. And that's not just true of the people we would consider our you know, ideological enemies. That's true of us as well. I mean, imagine how difficult it would be right now for Matt Frad to accept that Mormonism or atheism or Protestantism, not that Protestantism exists, there's just Protestantisms, but you know, how difficult would that be for me if those things, one of those things were true for me to accept? I mean, Oh my gosh, that would be really tough. I mean, I've, I'm kind of writing books in the Catholic world. You know, people you know, know of me as this Catholic speaker and stuff. Like, it, it, I kind of make my livelihood by doing that. It, it would be really difficult. So I think recognizing that when we, when we speak to people and, and trying to be sensitive to that, I think that, that, that can be helpful. Um, and then I guess finally, because I don't want to go on forever, uh, would be just to to focus on asking people questions um, rather than making statements. And this is what's been called the Socratic method. If I would highly recommend if people are interested, like to read some of Plato's writings, Plato has about, I think it's 35 dialogues. And in each of them, Socrates is the main protagonist. He's the, he's the main character. And um, Socrates really annoyed people because um he said, I don't have any wisdom, all right? I don't know these things, so I'm going to go around and ask these people who are experts on virtue or justice or whatever, and I'm just going to ask them questions. And, and of course, what would happen is these people realized quite quickly that they didn't know what they were talking about. Um, so we don't want to ask questions just to be an idiot, but, but just sort of like, okay, wh- why do you believe that? But let me back up a step. I think even before asking questions, we should define our terms, so if somebody says to us, like, um, well, I don't think God exists, we might say, what do you mean by God? You know, because I think it's very interesting, right? Like Richard Dawkins thinks he knows what God is and doesn't believe in him. Thomas Aquinas is certain he doesn't know what God is, but believes in him, right? So it's obviously like I think Dawkins may, may have a sort of anthropological, like, yeah view of God, right, that he ought not to have. And so if someone might say, well, I don't know, some guy, you know, who created all this and is up in heaven, you know, you might say, well, I'm not sure I believe that either. Right. You know, anyway, so, so I, think, I think like asking questions, defining terms, and then just trying our best to listen to people in a way we would like them to listen to us. So as a residential theology nerd, I have people that ask me to come and speak to their, insert relationship here, who's now an atheist. Right. And- it's so funny um, because what ends up happening is like I'll sit down there and I learned a long time ago that you can't argue people into the kingdom of heaven, but the arguments can clear the way for them to come to the kingdom of heaven. Right. So nice way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I realize also that my, my version of arguing typically was yelling until I got shrill um, and then keep (laughs) yelling. But the, the, so one of the ways that I, I have to personally actively combat my need to dominate the conversation and prove everyone wrong is by asking questions. And then I discover that that is actually the best way to have a conversation. And I'll sit down and it, it's, it's hysterical to me how many atheists, self-described, self-called atheists believe in God. And this one, this one conversation, I'm like, you're an atheist. And he's like, well, you know, now that you say, you know, and you start asking questions. And so I, I was with this one guy. He was uh, about maybe four or five years older than me, had a couple kids, 
um, married. So we, I went over to his house, had a couple beers. I lived about an hour and a half away. So I was doing this for a friend, and the friend was there. And I just, I was like, okay, so why don't you believe in God? And he would say, well, you know, I, I studied scripture at, at Baylor, and I studied, you know, a lot of the, you know, different things going into the Bible. And I think a lot of people have a very uh, childish understanding of scripture. And when that gets shattered, when you show like, oh, Matthew says this way, Mark says this way, they're like, oh, so one of them is lying? And you're like, no, they're writing for two totally different audiences, so they're going to, you know. So it's very difficult for a modern person to wrap their minds around literary genres of the ancient world and the storytelling ways that they do it. But um, so I, you, you just start asking questions over and over again. And so I said, I set this guy up and I feel a little bad about setting him up, but it was fascinating to watch him. He's like, I love Jesus. I was like, okay, well tell me about like, what, what do you mean you love Jesus? And I said, well, he's like, I mean, I think if people did what Jesus said, you know, most of the gospels, if you were to distill it down, he, I mean, this world would be a thousand times better. And I was like, really? What, what do you mean by that? And so he'd be like, well, like the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, okay, so what, what about the Sermon on the Mount is so appealing to you? So I'm just asking these questions. And he's like, well, I mean, how, this like radical way of, of loving your brother and your neighbor really shows us like it overcomes the, the tribalism and the ethnocentrism that was popular at that time and the nationalism that's popular at this time and the racism and all this stuff. And he said, it's fascinating that it took someone that this religious figure, and I don't believe any of that God stuff. And I said, well, so if we were to follow, if you as an atheist were to follow the Sermon on the Mount, you think your morality would be, you would like grow in your morality. He said, absolutely. And I said, well, isn't it weird that the Sermon on the Mount clearly depicts Jesus as God? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, here is a first century Jew, and I know you don't believe in God, but the Jews did in the first century, and they believe that God gave them the law. And here's Jesus in what we call the six antitheses editing the law, like the Ten Commandments. You have heard it was said to men of old, but I say to you. you don't commit adultery, but I say to you. I was like, what human being would dare be like, hey, remember that Tenth Commandment or the Sixth Commandment on committing adultery? All right, that's cool. But, you know, no, no Jewish audience would take that person seriously. And yet in the Sermon on the Mount, it just said that they were astonished at the teachings Jesus said. And so like this notion, I was like, so you can't get an editing of morality like Jesus gave us without presupposing the divinity that Jesus revealed to us as the basis for his editing and morality. He's like, huh, I never thought of that. And I was like, because he was operating the assumption that John and John's gospel is the only place where we get, like, Jesus yeah. is divine. And that came, like, 200 years after. And he's like, it's really like Mark and Matthew where you need to spend the most amount of your time. And I was like, can I, do you just want to walk through Mark and I'll show you all the places where he's God? And he's like, well, <laughs> you know, so it's, at the end of that conversation, most people, when you lead with questions, realize what they don't know. And that is one of the best services you can do to a human being because we keep thinking we know everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think another thing that's important to realize is when somebody you know, maybe makes an assertion or, or, or argues for something, it's important to ask yourself, what is the most that this proves? Right. So if somebody says to me, and I've had this a number of times, so have you, I don't believe in God. I'm like, okay, why not? And I'll say, well, look at the Old Testament. I mean, you've got this psychotic God who's bloodthirsty. And, and I, and also, so, okay, so then I can ask myself the question, okay, what is the most that this proves? Okay, well, the most that this proves is that the authors of Scripture got it wrong so that the Bible isn't inerrant. That's, that's probably the most that proves. So I'll say to them, okay, maybe you're right. Like, yeah, let's, let's just, let's agree for a moment. I don't agree with this, but let's, let's, let's go with what you're saying. There. The Bible's false. Okay. How does it follow from that, that God doesn't exist though? You know, that would be like, um, 
perhaps interviewing every living claimant who said that they had been abducted by aliens. And suppose after a thorough investigation of all of their writings and, and interviewing these different people, you came to the conclusion that they were lying or that they were insane. You wouldn't conclude from that that aliens do not exist. Like, that's not positive proof against aliens. All it shows is that, the, is that these accounts are likely to be false. Uh, so I think it's important to do that. You know, I see apologetics, Catholic apologetics, like a three-story mansion. We have theistic, Christian, and Catholic. And shouting out of the Catholic window on the third story, or third floor, to say an atheist who's out in the courtyard, something about the immaculate conception or transubstantiation um, analogously, that's like trying to explain advanced algebra to someone who denies basic arithmetic. And so instead, we should like begin, <laughs> begin where they are and kind of like, at least if we're arguing, lead them into the theistic floor. Like, what reasons do we have to think God exists? Because if, if it's true that God exists or if we've got better reasons to think he does than he doesn't and we go ahead and believe that, all of a sudden it becomes a whole lot more plausible that this God may have revealed himself in some way. And so now we become open to Christian apologetics. I find that helpful. Yeah, I think that's yeah. great. And I think you need to respect where uh, everyone says this. Come meet people where they're at. And they throw in that preposition there. Um, meet people where they're at. But no one does. <laughs> Very few people actually, because it takes discipline to actually it's, meet and it, people And it where takes patience. At. Yeah. Right. And I, I don't want to, a lot of the times I don't want patience. I just want to feel good or look good in front of other people. Like yeah. I want people to think I'm really smart, especially if other people are looking. Oh, I really want them to think I'm smart. You know, <laughs> what? I, want, I want, I want a goodwill hunting that guy. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. <laughs> like, you know, we all, it, we is all uh, it is, we all struggle with that kind of pride, but, uh, you know, serious philosophical discussion, it, it like, it cannot be limited to, to phrases and slogans like, Hey, I'm an atheist. I just believe in one less God than you do. Well, that's cute. But people have been like discussing the existence of God for thousands of years. And to think that you can sum it up in a sentence like that is vulgar. Yeah. Uh, and then the same, perhaps the same thing to like dismiss atheists, um, by saying, I don't know, something kind of insulting to them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if we're seriously searching for, for the way things are, you know, then, then we should kind of, that's sort of sacred ground. And so if we're yeah. dialoguing with an atheist uh, who's genuinely in search of the truth, like that should be a, a respectful conversation. But I think the reason it often isn't is because we see it take place in online forums. And when someone's on an online forum, you're, we're just not in the mental space yeah. to sit through and examine arguments. We just want a quick, you know, uh, to reply real quickly to make that person look bad. And I do that. One of my, and, one and of my, I regret it. One yeah. of my favorite experiences with that was a woman who is an ultra, ultra, ultra traditionalist. I mean, I'm sure she's a sedevacantist by three degrees. And she was, um, there was some, some video on YouTube where it was some Catholic video and people are commenting on it. And then all of a sudden someone posts this like huge paragraph and I hit reply and I wrote something and then another huge paragraph immediately happened. So I, I realized like we're all online at the same time uh -huh. and there are huge paragraphs like after one, after the other, after the other. And I realized she's not listening to anything I'm saying. She is literally copying and pasting from like a word document that she already mm. has set up, and so I'm like within the span of like ten seconds, you know, it would be a five hundred word response or whatever the the mm. limit is, and I was like, whoa, what is? Go oh, she's just got. So then I just started writing. You clearly don't care about me. You don't care about my salvation. You just care about winning an argument. And then a whole other thing comes up, um, you know, like repentance to the traditional one holy old Rome, blah 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 blah. Mm. And it was just fascinating to me how like literally on display is someone. 
it is the triumphalism that was warned about in Vatican II. Like, like this is supreme right. arrogant. You are so wrong. I don't even need to take you seriously as a human being. And, uh, yeah, the church fathers at, Vat- at the Vatican Council, they had this great line where they were talking about um, the document Nostra Aetate on, on our relationship with other religions. And it, they just – people were arguing, like, why should we give error freedom? freedom ha- error has no freedom. And then, you know, JP2 was one of the leading voices who said, no, it's, it's people have freedom. We give deference to people, and we work to correct their error through love and evangelism. We don't, it's not like we're saying all religions are the same. It's not like we're saying all religions deserve the same consideration even. What we are saying is people deserve the same consideration. So let's make room for people. And it's like, oh, oh yeah, I guess that personalism of JP2 really doesn't make sense. You know, it, uh, it gets past the ism and gets to the, gets to the person. But that still yeah. doesn't mean we ignore all these other things. We can still treat it, treat it seriously. You can have a, a dialogue with... Um, uh, what do you call it? Wahhabi Islamism, you know, uh, but you don't need and you can talk about all the different, you know, anti-intellectual bents of, you know, fundamentalist Christianity, but you can still love the person sitting on the other side of the table from you. Right. What was that line yeah. from Mother Teresa? The reason. Oh, I can't remember the reason why we fight or whatever is because we've lost we've lost the the remembrance that we belong to each other or something like that. I love that line. Like we belong to each other. Yeah. Even in our fractured humanity. I listened to your interview with Father, what's his name? James. Father James Martin. Yeah, and I thought he said some really prophetic things yeah. that we're just not interested. Thank you very much. Yeah. And it takes a lot of, I don't know, maybe self-knowledge to recognize that in yourself. And it's painful to recognize it. Like, it would be much better if I could sit here and be like, I am so right. And anyone who disagrees with me is, like, totally wrong. And I encounter people like that, and I'm like, it must be nice to, to see the world like that. Um but but I'm plagued with self-doubt and like introspection and, and worried that I've screwed something up or I doubt this or I have questions about, you know, the faith that I don't know how to reconcile, yeah. you know, I mean, that it's just, I think that's most, I don't know, most thoughtful people. I think if you found a worldview in which all of your questions were completely answered, um, that might be a sign that you found the wrong one. <laughs> Yeah, if if you come to the end of the page and all your questions are perfectly answered and yeah. you can answer everyone else's questions. Completely, and with you, no fear that you have, yeah. you know. I, I heard someone say recently, like, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of of faith. I, I haven't really thought that through yet, so I don't want to you know, well, stake. Cardinal, yeah. Cardinal Newman had the great line, a thousand questions does not a single doubt make. And That's right. Yeah. I always, you know, as I, I, we, we can need to wrap up. I have a, sure. a community group thing to go to. But uh, a buddy of mine... Uh, I was the godfather to her son. He was an atheist, became Catholic. She was a Sunni Muslim, became Catholic at the same time. It was, it was awesome. And uh, she spoke to me after she came into the church, and she said, you know, Michael, can I tell you what was the deciding moment for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. And she's like, you know, I've been researching all this stuff and going through all this stuff, but um, you sat me down, and I have a 30-minute meeting that I do with everyone who wants to prepare for sacraments as an adult. And she said, on the very first day, you walked me through the schedule of all the classes and all this stuff. And then you said at the end, uh, I want you to bring all your doubts, all your fears, hesitations, your objections, your worries, everything. 
And she said, you have no idea what that did for me. And I was like, wow. Dude, I just, that's I just, awesome. Yeah, I just always say that, you know, and now I always say that. <laughs> and when you say it, you say it as if there's some dramatic music playing in the background. And people are like, why are you being so intense? Like, I thought that would have the same effect on everybody. Yeah. In a world. <laughs> um, yeah, so she said, uh, and I said, well, why was that so significant for you? And she, she had taken a long journey. Southern Baptist, Hebrew roots moving Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Sunni Islam, like all wow. of this stuff. And she said every one of those groups, um, you know, and this might not be representative of everyone, but she said every one of those people, when I had questions, they told me I'm not allowed to ask questions because that shows my lack of faith. Right. Yeah. And I said, no, questions show that you're taking your faith seriously right. and that you're a mind that is awake. And so I always, like when I do studentville conferences and stuff, I always tell them, like, it is okay to ask questions. It is okay to struggle with this stuff. It's not okay not to struggle because then you're not taking it seriously. Uh, having questions does not put your salvation. And I'll have a line of kids afterwards who will just say to me, thank you for saying that. I felt so guilty for questioning God's existence. And I was like, if you question God's existence, chances are if you actually struggle with it, you're going to come out more faithful on the other side of it. I mean, that's what happened with me in high school. And so, that, yeah, I just people, – people feel guilty for all sorts of stuff, and we make people feel guilty for all sorts of stuff. But honestly, honest intellectual searching should never be one of them. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's, I know you're going to go, but I think it's important that we realize that um, only in maths, I think maybe, uh, it might, might be a bit, bit debatable, and other things, do we get like 100% certainty? Like in most things in life, we don't have 100% certainty. Like if you said to me, is your wife a Russian spy? I would say, uh, no. But if you kept asking me, eventually I might be like, okay, maybe, but I don't think so. Like I've got no <laughs> good reason to think that. So I'm just going to go on the assumption. Uh, so I think this idea that unless we have a hundred percent certainty, whatever that even means, you know, that we've got no good rights to go ahead and accept it. I think that's just putting the, the, the bar too high. Anyway, really nice talking to you. Yeah, it was good talking to you. Thank you for filling in. Now, Luke, uh, Luke is, is out. He had a last minute flight to Denver and, uh, he's got some really great conference with people like Jim Beckman and stuff. So, uh, God bless Luke and all of his travels. Good man, mm-hmm. that Luke. Thank you. So we got the podcast Pints with Aquinas, the podcast Integrity Restored. We have the website The Porn Effect, Integrity Restored. <laughs> no, right? There's so many. I'm so sorry. Many. Matt Frad. Matt Frad.com. And then Pints with Aquinas. 50. Let me see. Let me get this out. Dude, you ha- you ha- play, that, play that commercial. Oh, I am, I'm d- totally going yeah. to. I'm right. totally going to. I'll throw it in All the right. middle. All Pints right. with Aquinas, 50 plus deep thoughts, deep from, thoughts the from the angelic doctor. Yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it deep thoughts or 50 plus deep thoughts? 50 plus deep thoughts. Yeah. Okay. All, all I did is I took excerpts from St. Thomas in the Sumer and I broke them up into categories or chapters like God, faith, alcohol, happiness, and that sort of thing because I th- and then tried to like re- you know leave out some of the more metaphysical lingo. And okay. so it's just like a, I don't know. For me, I like reading the author themselves. I don't, I don't want to know what someone says about Aquinas as much as I want to learn to read him myself. So, And then we also have descriptions of different types of beer so people can become a wine snob and an Aquinas snob uh, uh, all right man all God right good you. deal all right you too man thank you all so right. much Matt Frat mother <laughs>